Welcome to the lead. I'm Pamela Brown in today for Jake Tapper and this afternoon the United States death toll crossed 156,000. In response to the average deaths of around 1,000 Americans a day, the president is saying in this new Axios interview, it is what it is, and claiming the government is doing all it can to combat the pandemic. Last hour, the coronavirus task force began meeting in the Situation Room at the White House, and top health officials are warning the coronavirus is more widespread than ever before in the U.S., as CNN's Erica Hill reports. If you ask the president, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. But that doesn't mean we aren't doing everything we can. It's under control as much as you can control it. Infectious disease experts disagree. Our national response to this pandemic should be a national embarrassment. And again, the data that actually comes from the White House task force backs up exactly what Dr. Burke said. There is uncontrolled spread in over 32 states in the country. Adequate testing and tracing still lacking six months into the pandemic. States that were doing well seeing cases climb again, including New Jersey, which just scaled back indoor gatherings to 25 people down from 100. The actions of a few knuckleheads leave us no other course. There are some bright spots. California's positivity rate is declining, and 14 states, including Arizona and Florida, are seeing a dip in new cases over the past week. But of the 28 holding steady, many are plateauing at a very high level. If you just look at the facts, the U.S. has about 4% of the world's population and about a quarter of the cases, 25% of the cases. We definitely have a problem here in the U.S. Deaths, which lag by at least two to four weeks, are rising in 27 states. Two teens in Florida among the more than 7,400 COVID-related deaths there. Arkansas, Georgia, and West Virginia, among the states seeing record hospitalizations. Atlanta's Georgia World Congress Center, now a surge hospital, again. It saddens me that we are, we are still headed in the wrong direction so many months after we had an opportunity to get on the other side of COVID-19. Teachers in one Phoenix district calling on the governor to issue statewide safety mandates. We don't want to endanger one student, one teacher, one support professional one community member. As Arizona's top education official warns, it's unlikely any school in that state will be able to reopen safely for in-person or hybrid learning. As states look to control the spread of this virus, the New York tri-state area, so New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, all adding the state of Rhode Island to that list of 35 states and territories. Travelers from those areas must quarantine for 14 days when entering any of these three states. Delaware and Washington, D.C., though, have been removed from the list, Pamela. All right, Erica Hill, thanks for breaking it down for us across the country. And joining me now is CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta to, to dig a little bit deeper into all of this. First off, uh, Sanjay, it's great to see you. I want to get your reaction you, to what we heard the president say in this interview, that the virus is, quote, under control as much as you can control it. Uh, well, that, that's not true. I mean, you know, uh, we have real world evidence from many countries around the world of what a, a greater control of the virus will be. It is a very contagious virus. There's no question. As you open things up, you will have increased spread. But, you know, it's worth looking at the terms here. You know, we're, we're in what's called mitigation mode, right? Pamela means we're trying to slow down the spread of this virus and we're not doing a very good job. 
Uh, what control would mean from a public health standpoint is more containment mode. And that would mean roughly one in a million new cases to one in 100,000 new cases per day. So that'd be roughly you know, 350 new cases per day in the United States. Hmm. We're at close to 50,000 new infections per day. So strictly speaking, we're not in control. And I think even just more, more sort of tangibly speaking, we're not in control. Right, and you look at the states, 34 states have a positivity rate of 5% or more. WHO recommends it should be less than five. So that, that gives you an idea. But right. you know, there's so many numbers and I think sometimes people might look at these numbers, it's, it's confusing. And, and you know, what, yeah. what is the story right now, six months into this pandemic, how would you tell the story of the pandemic in the United States? Uh, you know, it's a really good question. The arc of the story, uh, you know, keeps getting rewritten. I mean, I think we could have, if this were a baseball game, I think we could have been, you know, closer to the eighth or eighth inning maybe at this point, and instead we're closer to the second or third inning uh, of this uh, because, you know, it, the numbers continue to grow. So uh, th that's, that's sort of the concerning thing. We, we didn't do enough testing initially, and as a result, uh, we weren't able to find people who were infected, isolate them and trace their contacts and keep the numbers low. There was a lot of just widespread infection during that time that was largely unchecked. And because mm -hmm. people you know, can be asymptomatic, not have any symptoms and still spread it, that added a whole nother complicated dimension to this whole thing. So when you look at the right side of the screen and you say, well, here's the number of people who have contracted the coronavirus in the United States, five million, it could be five to 10 times higher than that. Pamela, uh, mm. and we just haven't been able to test those people. We're in a situation now where we don't know, and we don't know everything that we don't know at this point. We, we're not even sure where to look for some things at this point. So, okay, so given that, and then when you hear the president say, hey, it's under control as much as it can be, do you think the president just doesn't grasp how bad things are right now? I mean. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard you to know, say, it's, it's right? Or is he to just get, trying to, 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 is this just a sales job? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, everybody wants to be hopeful, uh, obviously, but the thing is that we know that the coronavirus task force members have been, you know, briefing the president, have been telling the president, showing the president these numbers. And the thing is that, you know, this is a different sort of story, right, Pamela, in the sense that there's objective data here, right? You do have numbers and facts and figures as opposed to theories and concepts and subjectivity. So he is hearing the real data. Mm -hmm. uh, and and if one looks at the real data and says, hey, we're not even 5% of the world's population population and we have 20 to 25 percent of the world's infections and deaths I I think that would that would that would take anybody you know and and make them say hey look this is serious we have to do something about it and you're hearing his own public you know health experts uh, Dr. Fauci saying that he agrees with Dr. Burks calling this current widespread outbreak of the virus quote insidious uh, what does that mean practically speaking I think what that really means is that, you know, we, we've never really had full eyes on the extent of this problem in the United States. Uh, again, I, I talk about testing all the time. I think it's going to be, you know, the thing that I look back on this time of my life and say I talked about that more than anything else. But we didn't test, and I think there was a there was a minimizing of the importance of testing. So now insidious means that this continues to spread. This hmm. virus continues to spread unchecked. The, the role of testing right now in this country is to identify hot spots in the country. The problem is we don't know places that seem like they're okay right now, just fine, nothing to worry about here. You don't know 
because there's not adequate testing in those places soon. And the problem is if you start to get behind, if all of a sudden there's a, an outbreak, a small outbreak even, it can spiral into exponential growth very, mm -hmm. very quickly. You can get, you, the curve can get away from you very, very fast. So, okay, so you say this, and now as parents, I know both of us are parents, we're weighing whether to send our, our children back. As you're laying out this, this picture of, hey, this is an insidious uh, pandemic, you don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, I should say insidious virus. Um, and Dr. Fauci is saying, hey, look, the default position should be to keep schools open, but the primary consideration should be safety. What does that even mean? Like. Yeah. Of course, the school should be safe, but given what you just laid out, how are how will you guarantee safety? Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's tough, and you know, I mean, I think Dr. Fauci is saying, I think what we're all thinking, but look, every parent really in America has to become an amateur epidemiologist right now to figure this out. Let me show you some of the the actual gating criteria. This came from the White House itself in terms of what we should look for before thinking about opening schools. Now, you know, just think about your own community. Have COVID cases been going down for 14 days in a row? Have hospital visits uh, been going down 14 days in a row? You mentioned percent positive. Have they been going down for 14 days in a row? Are, are hospitals adequately staffed? And then this bottom one, Pamela, I think is the big one. Do you have testing programs in place? Mm -hmm. Could you get your child tested? Could you get yourself tested? Could you get a rapid result uh, quickly? Because that's gonna be the key if you do open a school to keeping it open, you've got to quickly, there will be new infections, almost guaranteed because it's a contagious virus. There will be people who become infected that otherwise wouldn't. Can you identify them quickly enough to not let this spiral into exponential growth? If you don't have adequate testing in place, I, I, I just don't see how you do it. And most places in the country right now still don't have that so many mm -hmm. months into this. Yeah, and we're actually later on in the show, we're gonna be doing a deeper dive into the testing issues that, that still exist right now. Really quick, I wanna go to this study. It's a new Lancet study that showing that two major keys to reopening schools are successful testing, as you pointed out, also contact tracing. Public health experts say that that uh, both aren't where they need to be in this country, as you know. So just the bottom line here, uh, Sanji, as things stand today, um, as we know, it's a fluid, things change all the time. But what would you advise parents weighing whether or not they should send their child to school? I, I think those those criteria for your own community are important. If, if the numbers really have been going down 14 days in a row, as I laid out there, and you do feel very confident in testing, then perhaps. Uh, but the issue is going to be what happens if you do have a significant number of people who test positive? And, and you also gotta remember, you know, while it is true that children, young people are less likely to get sick from this, they can still transmit it. And you have faculty and teachers and staff in these schools, a third of which, according to some studies, would qualify as being vulnerable for in some way because of their age or pre-existing conditions. So, you know, that, that all has to be accounted for. It's gonna be tough. We're, this is a bad viral storm. Mm -hmm. You wanna use a metaphor, this is like a bad hurricane, right? I mean, there's nothing good about it. We all have to sort of hunker down here a bit as it, it will pass, it's just gonna take a long time, but it's gonna be tough to do things where you're clustering people together inside, possibly with vulnerable people and, and hope that it all goes right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the big difference, right? It's like it's like a hurricane, but it's lasting a lot longer than, you know, a hurricane does. Even though people have pandemic right. fatigue right now, it doesn't mean we're out of, out of the woods or even close to it. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, right. thank you so much. You got it, Pamela. Thank you. Well, President Trump says you can do too much testing for the virus. That is not true. 
This and his other questionable claims on a wide range of issues. Plus, a massive explosion of mushroom cloud and its effects felt 150 miles away. We are live with the latest on this mysterious deadly blast. Turning to our politics lead now, President Trump saying it is what it is that 156,000 Americans have died of coronavirus. One of the many jaw-dropping moments during his interview with Axios on HBO. At one point, he suggested, quote, some people think you can test too much. But the president couldn't explain who those people are. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, his answers leave you wondering whether he understands just how bad the pandemic is. Even though his own health experts are warning that the U.S. has entered a worrisome new phase of the pandemic, President Trump is insisting it's under control. Here's one right here, United States. You take anyway. the number of cases, okay. now look, we're last, meaning we're first. Lost. In a new interview with Axios, the president is eager to declare victory and leans on the mortality rate as an indication that things are improving. Death is way down from where it was. Despite how more than a thousand Americans have died on average per day for the last week straight, the president stuck to his talking point. Right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world. than what is that? Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't, you can't do that. He also claimed once again that there are more cases in the U.S. because there is more testing, though health officials say it's because the virus is spreading. There are those that say you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? Trump also defended putting thousands of his supporters indoors without requiring masks or social distancing during his attempt to return to the campaign trail six weeks ago in Tulsa. Well, because that area was a very good area at the time. It was a, an area that was Cases pretty much stopped. over after, after, a month later, a it started before. going up. That's a month later. Trump argued that he canceled another planned rally in New Hampshire out of concern for public health. I canceled another one. I had to cancel it. Right. We're have a great crowd in New Hampshire, and I canceled it for the same reason. But his own staff told reporters that it was only postponed because of bad weather and that it would be rescheduled. It never was. And Pam, you'll remember the president's national security advisor who tested positive for COVID-19. He is now back at work at the White House. He was seen inside the West Wing today. Remember on July 23rd, he left the White House. The White House confirmed three days later he had actually tested positive for coronavirus. But now he is back to work after testing negative, the White House says. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for that report. And turning now to breaking news in our world lead. A blast rocking the Lebanese capital of Beirut, creating a massive mushroom cloud above the city, which could be seen and felt from miles away. What? 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 
At first, Lebanese officials blamed fireworks, but now they say it was confiscated high explosive materials. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in Beirut. So Ben, the blast was felt as far as the island, far away as the island of Cyprus, 150 miles away. You were in CNN's Beirut bureau nearby when it happened. What did you experience? Well, it's just after 6 p.m. in the evening local time, about five hours ago, Pamela, when I felt what I thought was an earthquake. This is an earthquake zone. Uh, but just moments later, the windows in our bureau and the window frames were just knocked out by the blast. The office is in shambles, but uh, we were relatively lucky. Our cameraman was slightly injured when the blast blew him off his scooter. Uh, but we understand from the Lebanese health minister that at least 50 people were killed and more than 2,750 wounded. And this is just initial reports. Uh, I spoke to someone who's in a neighborhood near the port uh, who said that buildings have collapsed, that the neighborhoods are unrecognizable, that in the immediate aftermath of the blast, there were wounded people lying all over the streets, that shortly afterwards, uh, people were trying to provide first aid to some, providing CPR uh, to others. The hospitals are overwhelmed. We uh, spoke to somebody at one of the main hospi hospitals here who said that they were treating at least 400 injuries. Uh, and uh, the Lebanese Red Cross, for example, has called on all its ambulances in the entire country uh, to rush to Beirut as soon as possible. As far as the cause of this blast, as you mentioned initially, the official news agency said it was a warehouse full of fireworks. But now it appears that there was some sort of confiscated high explosives which in that warehouse which might explain the size of that massive blast hmm. pamela all right ben wiedemann glad you're okay uh, live for us in beirut well, why president trump claims the u.s is testing too much and his testing chief says they're doing enough cnn talked to more than 20 labs health officials and experts who say they're wrong what they still need up next We are back with our health lead and a new CNN investigation into the continued coronavirus testing crisis in the U.S. six months into this pandemic. The Trump administration testings are told our Jake Tapper the federal government is doing enough with testing. But our CNN senior investigative correspondent Drew Griffin talked to more than 20 experts who made it clear what the federal government is doing is not enough. Here's what they said. Why is coronavirus testing in the U.S. still a debacle? CNN spoke to state health officials, testing labs, test suppliers, hospitals, and industry insiders, more than 20 testing experts. The overwhelming consensus, no federal plan. We need to have a better national strategy to deal with testing. But wait a minute, wasn't there supposed to be a plan? A White House coronavirus task force, and wasn't this man, Admiral Brett Giroir, tasked with fixing testing? The answer to all three is yes, and according to Admiral Brett Joie, the federal government is doing all it can. But Don't it's touch not enough. Base with them. Of course it's enough. Tell me one thing that we should be doing with any of these private labs that we're not doing or they're not doing on their own, and I'm happy to do it. Well, here, Admiral Joie, is what the federal government should be doing, according to those experts. First, national coordination of supplies. You have 
whether intentionally or not, competition across states, across labs. There is not enough of anything. The swabs, pipettes, the chemicals needed to perform a test called reagents, which is leading to huge competition between states and labs. So if we had all of the supplies that we could use, um, you know, we could perform around 10,000 tests per day, but we just don't have all of the supplies or all of the people. Case in point, Tricor, New Mexico's largest medical lab, is running just 3,700 tests a day instead of the 10,000 it could handle, nowhere near its capacity. We need goals at a federal level and the support at the federal level for us to get uh, to where we need to be for testing. It sounds like a very polite way to say that if there is a national strategy, nobody in New Mexico knows about it. Uh, probably, yes. <laughs> One way to get more of those supplies is increased use of the Defense Production Act, or DPA. CNN previously reported how the administration isn't using the DPA as much as it could. A plan released by the Rockefeller Foundation said the government should immediately invoke the act, specifically to increase supplies for reagents and machinery to process testing. What we have seen is that industry left to its own devices is not going to produce the types of tests and the scale of tests necessary. And several of the experts say the Trump administration needs to abandon its idea that the competitive marketplace will solve supply issues. It simply won't. And if you want proof, Dr. Rajiv Shah of the Rockefeller Foundation says turn on your TV and watch some sports. If you are a multi-million dollar baseball or basketball player, you're getting tested quite often so that you can go to work. But if you're a teacher, if you're a healthcare worker, if you're out there doing your job and asked to do your job without the benefit of support for testing, that's not fair and that's not right. Heather Pierce with the Association of American Medical Colleges says it's time to let science lead this U.S. response. That is not a market-driven response. That is something that requires the engagement of the public health community, the academic community, and the government public health forces. In other words, a federal plan. Pamela, the response to this story from the Department of Health and Human Services is that it does have a plan. It's working with states every day, but a single national plan is not appropriate because states have different needs. As for the supply issue, the Department of Health and Human Services says it's simply unfeasible, unmanageable for the federal government to supply every single lab. Pamela, they think that this is working. Well, and I read that same blueprint as you did, and, and the only plan I saw was to leave it to the states, and uh, we're all seeing how that is playing out. Thank you so much, Drew. I do appreciate it. And let's dive a little bit deeper into this with Jennifer Nezzo, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Um, reiterating again, we're, we're around six months into this pandemic. How would you say the state of things are uh, with testing across the country? Like, how would you lay it out? Yeah, we're in really dire circumstances right now. I mean, you heard in the before clip about the challenges, about not having enough tests, um, despite all of the work being done across the country and by individual states to try to increase the amount of testing that they're doing. Um, but right now, we're also having another, and in my view, possibly more important issue, which is that it's taking a really long time to get test results back, sometimes a week or more, which is essentially makes these tests useless. 
Um, if we can't get these test results back in a couple of days, like in other countries, we're not going to be able to act upon these test results. Okay, so, so to your point there, the president boasts that the U.S. is doing more testing than any country in the world. But how meaningful is that metric if people are waiting days, even weeks for their results? I mean... Right, exactly. We shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back for tests that come back sometimes a week or more later. Um, that's functionally useless, and it doesn't allow us to do the work that is necessary to stop transmission of the virus. It makes it very hard to intervene for when people are um, infected to make sure that they're staying at home and not infecting others. And it makes essentially almost impossible the ability to do contact tracing, to find people who may be exposed, may have been exposed and to make sure that they're staying home so that they don't infect others. Okay, so you're, you just laid out why people should get tested and why they should get the results back soon. Uh, President Trump, on the other hand, insists that the U.S. is, is testing too much. Here's what he said. You know, there are those that say you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? What testing does? Who, no, no, I'm sorry. Shows, just, wait a minute. Just, let, me, let me explain. What testing does? It shows cases. It shows where there may be cases. Other countries test. You know when they test? They test when somebody's sick. That's when they test. Do you know any public health experts who say you can test too much? Is there any scenario in which that is possible? So that's not what's happening in the United States right now. One of the things we look at to know if we're doing enough testing is um, positivity. People have probably heard about this term by now. It's basically the percentage of people who get tested that come back positive. One thing that we've seen across the world, the countries that are doing well with respect to responding to COVID-19, all test enough to keep their positivity low. And right now, the across the United States, test positivity is above where it needs to be, which means that we need to test more. But that said, if we're testing more and we're still getting results back a week later, it's almost pointless. So I would frankly rather see us possibly do less testing in that case, if that means that we can get test results back in, in a couple of weeks. But just on the, the bare facts, are we testing too much? The answer is no. We still need to cast a wider net with the tests that we have in order to find infections. Yeah, and you mentioned these other countries, and essentially some of the other countries who have been successful in largely containing the epidemic, um, they had a more tailored testing regimen, right? It wasn't, it, they, they looked at the epidemic at hand in, their, in the country and the percent positivity to determine who should get tested, right? Yeah, I mean, it's true. We should really be targeting the people who we think are most likely to be infected and then, you know, make sure that they at least can get tested in a timely enough manner. And right now we don't really have that. We have people who maybe have symptoms or maybe exposed to a case, which are very much our top priority for testing, that go and get tested and then don't hear a week um, or more later. In other countries, uh, you know, it takes a day or two to get a text response to tell you whether you're positive or not. And that's really what we should be aiming for. Okay, so let's talk about that disparity because you have people who can get test results back in 15 minutes. Um, professional athletes are getting tested all the time and getting results back right away. Then you have the other people across America who are waiting days, even weeks to get results. Um, why is there that disparity? What does the federal government need to do to bridge the gap? Right. So this is where the, the absence of a national testing strategy is really turning out to be um, problematic because there are these discrepancies out there. There are some technologies that can give us test results back quickly. But if you wanted to go get tested, would you even know where to go to get that test? And the answer is no. So we should really be thinking about how should we be using testing, given what we have, 
how should we be trying to fix the supply chain such that we can do more and meaningful tests? Um, and then think about what technology is best poised to give us test results in the time um, period that we need them. And the absence of this kind of leadership and coordination has really hindered our ability to answer. Okay, really quickly, before I let you go, the, the administration keeps saying, look, every state is different. Um, you know, Montana is different from New York as, as it pertains to testing. But we've seen this virus doesn't respect boundaries. What do you think about that argument? Well, first of all, no, ta no state is going to be safe until all states are safe. And I'm sure if you ask almost every state, they would welcome additional federal help. Okay, Jennifer, thank you so much. That sums it up. Well, President Trump has been blasting mail-in voting, but now he's suddenly reversed course. Sort of. That's next. In our 2020 lead, today's primary elections in Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington state aren't just about the local races. This is also a test. All of these states are offering mail-in voting, no questions asked. Washington state has been voting by mail since 2011. And even though President Trump and Joe Biden aren't on the ticket, today's events could foreshadow what's to come in November. As CNN Jessica Schneider reports, this comes as the president continues to attack mail-in voting and the post office's ability to handle absentee ballots. The president reversing course in part on his conspiratorial stance on mail-in voting. In a tweet this afternoon, he signaled his approval for Florida's mail-in and absentee voting. In Florida, the election system is safe and secure, tried and true. I encourage all to request a ballot and vote by mail. A sudden departure from his continued attempts to discredit mail-in balloting across the country, including in an interview taped just a few days ago. There is no way you can go through a mail-in vote without massive cheating. Trump has been floating these false claims about mail-in voting fraud for months. Universal mail-in ballots is going to be a great embarrassment to our country. But the truth is, mail-in voting fraud is exceedingly rare. Why? It's the states that administer the vote, and all have systems and processes in place to prevent forgery and theft. The president has also floated the false claim about possible foreign interference of mail-in ballots. But that, too, has no basis. The director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, William Evanina, said last month in a statement, it is extraordinarily difficult for foreign adversaries to broadly disrupt or change vote tallies without detection. The president is also casting doubts about the vote count. You know, you could have a case where this election won't be decided on the evening of November 3rd. Absolutely. This election could What's be wrong decided two months later. The president pointing to a Democratic congressional primary in New York City that still isn't decided more than a month after the election. They're six weeks into it now. They have no clue what's going on. And I mean, I think I can say right here and now, I think you have to rerun that race because it's a mess. While the U.S. Postal Service tells CNN it has ample capacity to handle what could be a surge of ballots by mail for the general election, there could be and have been problems at the local level, getting ballots back on time, making sure they're postmarked, and ensuring there are enough election workers to sort and count. But while that will delay the results, it does not mean that the numbers will be manipulated, as the president suggests. Eight states, plus Washington, D.C., will be conducting a primarily vote-by-mail election in November. Colorado, Washington, and Oregon have had mail-in voting in previous elections without major problems. And Hawaii and Utah plan to hold vote-by-mail even before the coronavirus pandemic. 
And in total, 35 states allow voters to vote by mail for any reason. There are seven more states that do require a reason from voters before they get that mail-in ballot. And Pamela, recently several states have actually changed their rules because of the coronavirus pandemic, which will allow more and more voters to send those mail-in ballots. Pamela. All right. Thanks so much, Jessica. We do appreciate it. And meantime, President Trump is also dismissing the legacy of the late civil rights leader, Congressman John Lewis, and instead complaining that Lewis did not attend his inauguration and this interview with Axios on HBO. Find him impressive? Uh, I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive, but no, but I didn't Did go. you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches, and that's okay, that's his right. And again, nobody has done more right. for but, but back black to, Americans than I have. I understand. He should have come, but back, I think he made a big mistake. But, but, take, but taking come. your relationship with him out of it, do you find his story impressive, what he's done for this country? He was a person that devoted a lot of energy and a lot of heart to civil rights, but there were many others also. So joining me now is Democratic strategist and CNN political commentator Paul Begala. Great to see you, Paul. Hi, uh, Pamela. First off, I just want to get your reaction. When you, you hear President Trump's thoughts on John Lewis, what do you think? Well, I, you know, Mr. Lewis was a friend of mine. And um, I'm quite sure this would not have bothered Mr. Lewis. His place in history is secure. Uh, I think he would tell us. In fact, I've got his book back here, and I, I got it out again. He gave it to me 22 years ago, and he wrote in it. With faith and hope, Paul, keep your eyes on the prize. And so I'm thinking that as I listen to the mm. president say this. And, and the prize here is voting rights. Mr. Lewis shed blood and risked his life for the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Republican Supreme Court gutted it. That's where he would want this focus to be. And, and I thought Jessica's report was really important. Voting by mail is safe. It's honest. It's ethical. It's clean. It is fraud free. And I, I think John Lewis would be saying, don't worry about personal attacks on me. God knows he endured a lot worse from from uh, the the beatings from George Wallace's state troopers 20 30 50 years ago uh, but he would say vote register and vote and mm -hmm. and I, I I think that's what Mr. Lewis would want his legacy to be hmm. all right well I we can't help but notice uh, the background where you are Paul this <laughs> yes. your your new book that's out it's titled you're fired the perfect guide to beating Donald Trump and in this book you write um, that you would not be surprised if President Trump tries to cancel the election. We just heard the president in Jessica's piece, as you pointed out, trying to undermine mail-in voting, saying he'll fight it in the courts. Do you think he's legitimately trying to set the stage for a delayed or canceled election? What do you think's going on here? I think he's trying to set the stage to claim that the vote was fraudulent. He, he knows or should know he has no power to delay the election. That's not in the president's right. uh, power. That's set by Congress. It's set by states. It's in the Constitution. He can't stop that. So I think he's trying to sow the seeds of doubt. I think he's a very good politician. I think he sees that he's in a lot of trouble politically. Hmm. Candidly, he's got plenty of time to make it up. But I think what he's trying to do is undermine this. This is a pattern, I, as, I, as I show in the book, when Xi Jinping, the communist Chinese leader who was not voted by anybody, when he declared himself president for life, President Trump, instead of saying, gee, in America, we have freedom, we believe in voting, he said instead, gee, I'd like to have that here. Hmm. So he's an autocrat wannabe, and I think he's sowing the seeds. People need to know that if they want to fire this president, they're going to have to register, they're going to have to vote, and their votes will be counted, and their votes will count, 
And if he loses, even if he doesn't like it, I think uh, he's going to have to vacate the building because that's freedom. It's interesting you point out sowing the seeds of doubt. Uh, sources I've spoken to in the intelligence community, law enforcement, say basically they're concerned that that is amplifying what foreign adversaries are trying to do to undermine democracy around the election. Um, and, and just reading through your book, you know, there is one major thing you're warning Democrats against. You write in your book, I'm terribly worried that some Democrats will swing from sense to nonsense trying to answer Trump's division with our division, his vulgarity with all, our vulgarity, his hate with our hate, his lies with our lies. Therein lies the path to defeat. If we try to out-Trump Trump, we will not only lose the election, we will deserve to. So are you saying the Democrats should not return any attacks President Trump makes against Joe Biden or, or the Biden family? Uh, yes, in short. And it's not that you don't respond, but that you, you, you respond with what matters in people's lives. I, I suggest in the book that people go back and study what Barack Obama did. Boy, he had a lot of attacks, uh, including from Donald Trump. Remember the racist birther nonsense. Uh, what President Obama did wasn't just say, oh, yeah, I really was born in Hawaii. He said, look, they're trying to steal this from you. He's using, and this is what Trump does. He uses division as diversion. He divides us by race, and that's reprehensible. But I think he does it to distract from the fact that he's in court right now trying to take away health care from millions of Americans, that he's got a budget that would cut Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, that, that he is doing a completely incompetent job on the coronavirus. So those are the sorts of defenses. In the debates, and I don't advise politicians anymore, but I know Joe Biden's watching. Hey, Joe, when he comes after your family, don't defend your family. Defend the families of the American people. Defend the families of those soldiers who have bounties put on their head by, by Vladimir Putin or the families who, who are at risk of losing their health care because of a pre-existing condition. That's the way to do this. And I watched Barack Obama do that. I watched Bill Clinton back in my day do it. That's the way you do this. It's not by staying on his turf, hmm. but in fact shifting it to the turf that the voters want to hear about. All right, Papa Gala, thank you so much for that. And Thanks, again, your new book, You're Fired, The Perfect <laughs> Guide to Beating Donald Trump is out now. Congrats on your book, Paul. Thanks very much, Pamela. Meantime, millions of Americans are without power as the tropical storm turns deadly and it is not done unleashing its wrath. The latest forecast, up next. Turning to our politics lead now, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine has a message for lawmakers negotiating with the White House on the next stimulus bill. Today telling reporters, if we can't get this done in the midst of a persistent pandemic, then we have failed the American people. Collins is facing a difficult re-election battle and says she wants a package passed and recess delayed if they can't reach a deal. Still, progress seems far away as millions of Americans dependent on unemployment insurance still have no answers from Congress. CNN's Phil Maddenly is live from Capitol Hill. So, Phil, still no resolution on unemployment insurance, food assistance, even the total price tag. What's going on behind the scenes there? Yeah, but other than that, everything's going swimmingly yeah. right now with these <laughs> negotiations. Look, I think the reality has remained pretty static over the course of the last several days on the major issues, and you can start to tick through them. You mentioned federal unemployment insurance, funding for states and localities, food assistance, eviction moratorium, even postal service and election security funds, which is a major priority for Democrats. None of these issues have, at 
least reached any type of path forward at this point in time. Now, as we speak right now, Pamela, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows are once again meeting behind closed doors with the top two Democrats in the Congress, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democratic Leader Chuck Schumer. Before that meeting, they met with Senate Republicans and said very clearly that there had been no progress, that there was a stalemate, according to people who are in the room. They are going to try and jar that stalemate loose in this meeting right now. Mnuchin saying before the meeting he had a couple of proposals he wanted to present. He hoped Democrats would hear them out and view them favorably. But if they don't, the White House is still considering some type of executive action, kind of a threat to bring Democrats to the table. The bottom line, Pamela, here is this. Democrats right now feel like they've got all the cards that they don't need to give. And until that changes or until the White House comes their way, there's no deal in sight. That is not a very encouraging note to end on, Phil, but that is the reality that we're dealing with right now. Thank you so much for bringing us the latest. And turning to our national lead right now, more than 100 million people are at risk for flooding and high winds, and two and a half million customers are without power as a tropical storm barrels up the east coast of the United States. At least two people were killed and others injured when a tornado from that storm tore through a North Carolina mobile home park. And rescue crews scrambled to save stranded drivers as high waters took over streets and neighborhoods in the suburbs right outside of Philadelphia. CNN meteorologist Tom Sater is tracking the storm. So, Tom, now that the storm has made landfall, what are the biggest threats? Well, we still have a threat for more power outages, Pamela. We still have a, a threat for more uh, severe flooding that's going to occur. I mean, the winds alone are still hanging into New York City, even though the rain has moved out. We've been watching this for over seven days. It's been named for six, flooding Puerto Rico, making its way over the mountains, Dominican Republic, fighting the dry air, spared Florida. Just after 11 p.m. making landfall, winds went from 70 to 75 to 85. We had house fires with waters on the ground level, swift water rescues, massive surge and flooding and evacuations. The storm continues to make its way now north of New York, but those winds are still strong, still trying to uh, alleviate the problem as it makes its way toward the Canadian border. But watch this. I mean, we've got over 3 million customers without power. That's not people. There's more people, over 3 million customers, more suffering in the days ahead until they can get that power restored. If you look at the tornadoes, 21 tornadoes in five states. 10 states had a total of over 100 tornado warnings, and that threat continues. But look at the winds. A water spout hit a, a, a weather station in New Jersey, Long Beach Island. 109 mile per hour winds, but if you look at New York, Battery Park and JFK, 78 mile per hour winds, 70. We talked about it yesterday. This could be the greatest wind event New York City has see, uh, season uh, since Superstorm Sandy. It surpassed that. Uh, so again, crazy amounts of rainfall still in New England. Tornado watch for this area until 9 p.m. till we say goodbye at midnight. All right, Tom Sater, thank you so much for that. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. Thanks for watching. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country.
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.